welcome to this podcast, My Positive Birth, a little corner of the internet where I will be collecting positive stories from women birthing their babies across the UK. My name is Lisa. I'm a doula in southwest London. I have three children and two positive birth stories. I truly believe that we can all learn so much by listening to the positive stories of women and families who have gone before us. What their birth experience was like, what they did, how they felt, how they feel now a few months or even years later. So come and surround yourself with positive birth stories told in women's own words. And I hope you'll find a village here to calm you, but also to inspire you and give you confidence in birth. All women and babies deserve a positive birth experience. So let's get cracking on today's episode. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the podcast this week. Um, and I am always excited and honoured to speak to every single mum on the podcast. But today, I just times that by a million um, because I'm joined by Megan. Hi, Megan. Hi. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. <laughs> Megan will tell you herself in a minute. But um, Megan runs an organisation called BirthEd, um, which I'm a big fan of. Yeah, and wish had been around when I when I had my children. Um, so yeah, Megan, do you please tell us a little bit about about who you are and what you do? Sure. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Megan Rossiter. I am a mum to two boys, um, and I am the founder of an organisation called BirthEd. Um, I founded BirthEd after the birth of my first baby, which is actually the story that I'm going to be sharing with everybody today. Um, in hopefully, it, it was a way of filling what I felt was a kind of huge gap in birth preparation. Um, it seemed to me that there was a kind of the hypnobirthing preparation that was available was very idealistic, very much put kind of natural home birth on a pedestal and everything else felt a little bit kind of lesser than. And the kind of other antenatal preparation in terms of antenatal classes was either uh, pretty unrealistic and not a very good preparation for what the maternity system actually entailed or was essentially kind of grooming women to comply with whatever they were told to do by their care providers um and i felt that there was definitely somewhere in the middle that needed to be sorted that actually empowered women to feel confident in themselves to understand the choices and decisions that they were able to make for themselves but that was kind of judgment free in terms of what those decisions actually ended up being um so very much kind of supporting normal physiological birth and the huge rewards and benefits that that has um but in whatever context feels right for them so whether that was an induction of labor a cesarean birth um how can we kind of replicate those for those situations so that is kind of where i developed the birth ed course from yeah amazing thank you and um and you run you do all sorts of stuff online don't you and then you run face-to-face courses as yes, well. Yes, so we've got an online course um, that is a kind of paid for £40 or $49, depending on where in the world you're accessing it. Um, but tons of free information as well. We've got um, a sort of a different podcast, a kind of information sharing podcast, um, interviewing experts around all aspects of kind of women's health, parenting, pregnancy and birth. Um, Instagram page that we kind of share loads, again, loads of free information, mailing list, loads of free information. Um, and then in-person courses I run either over Zoom, um, but primarily kind of in-person in Southwest London and Surrey at the moment. Yeah, brilliant. And I'll put, if you're not following Megan already, then I'll put all her details in the show notes. Uh, so yeah, so you absolutely can. And uh, we've picked a good day to record this, Megan, because it is your son's actual birthday. We have. We were delayed last week. My computer broke, helpful. Um, and so we've ended up, it is my son's sixth birthday today. So you're getting like a real time 
um, reminisce of yeah what literally happened on this day um, six years ago. So it's quite a special day for me today. And as much as possible, I will hand the floor over to you now. So if you're happy just to take us through whatever you think is relevant really through from the pregnancy through to the birth, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you said sort of starting with the pregnancy, because I think sometimes what happens when we hear um, birth stories in isolation, sort of from the moment somebody went into labour till the moment baby's born, is we lose any kind of contextualisation of where did this, like, where did this start? What was that pregnancy like? What were you doing before you fell pregnant? What kind of personality have you got? And all of those things are really huge, I think, drivers to how I ended up experiencing um, this birth. So, I suppose the place to kind of start is that when I fell pregnant, I was midway through my midwifery training. So I was going into my second year. um, And so I had worked in hospital environments, birth centre environments, community, um, meeting women when they were pregnant. And so I had had a good idea of kind of what birth looked like, what I wanted from birth, what I didn't want from birth, um, where the kind of potential stumbling blocks were. So, you know, I thought I had a pretty good idea of what that that looked like, what my choices were, what was available to me. then when I fell pregnant, I had um, I suffered with severe hyperemesis gravidarum or HG, which is basically the very, very extreme end of nausea and vomiting in pregnancy. So I spent a lot of the first 23 weeks of pregnancy um, in and out of hospital. I was on a lot of medication up until the birth. Um, it obviously kind of impacted both physically and emotionally, lost a lot of weight, was, was very, very kind of poorly throughout pregnancy. Um, which again, I think I feel is kind of relevant to some of the decisions that we ended up making and the kind of the experience that we had um, of, of the birth kind of on the day. Um, when we were, it must have been about 20 weeks pregnant, we, um, a friend of mine had trained as a hypnobirthing teacher. And so six years ago, where are we now? 2022. Six years ago, hypnobirthing was even less known, less spoken about than it is now. It, even in the past six years, we've seen it, like the popularity of it bloom, the kind of offering of courses and things that the utilization of it from women has really really kind of blown up versus six years ago when I was pregnant with Otis um and so when she sort of suggested doing a hypnobirthing course I was somewhat skeptical about what this actually kind of might involve um but we were supposed to be having renovations done on our house and she was supposed to be going away for a long period of time and she basically told us that we could stay in her house for free so me and my husband were like well we can't not do it we have to pay her for this course because she's giving us her house for free um so we were sort of like obliged into attending this hypnobirthing course which in the strangest turn of events basically ended up transforming my entire life so one of those like weird sliding door moments we did this um like one-to-one hypnobirthing course in our house um and bearing in mind that I actually kind of worked in the maternity system, I'd seen lots of women give birth, it really, really opened my eyes and transformed what I thought birth was, what I thought I was capable of, um, and really, really changed our, our plans and our preferences for our birth. Um, so I had initially been thinking that I was going to give birth on a birth centre um, because they were nice, they were relaxing. Um, but when I really kind of got to grips with actually how your mind works in labour, the prospect of getting in a car in labour just seemed totally mad to me. Um, and the idea of actually being in my home environment just made so much more sense. My um, husband hates hospitals, so I knew that he wouldn't be comfortable in the kind of hospital environment. Um, and so actually different to what a lot of people experience but he was kind of quite on board with this right from the beginning um we ended up deciding to plan a home birth so this was our kind of plan from about 20 24 weeks we decided um that we were going to have a baby at home so our local trust where I gave birth have got a really really fantastic home birth team um all of the antenatal appointments switched to being from 
our home, um, the kind of conversations that we were having with midwives, the length of the appointments, it all just like vastly improved when we made that decision to switch to home birth care. Um, and you'll you'll find out quite soon that we didn't actually have a home birth, but it was still one of the best decisions that we made. And it really, really transformed my experience of birth, even though we didn't have a home birth. Um, so that's the kind of, I suppose, the, the context. That's where we're starting from in terms of what we wanted from birth. I really wanted, I really, really wanted a straightforward vaginal birth. I was very scared of having an instrumental birth. I was very scared of having an unplanned cesarean birth. Um, I, having sort of seen them being there, I, I really was very set in my head about what I wanted to experience um i don't know whether that was helpful to me or not but that was very much was my mindset going into the birth so can i just ask that just as you're saying that it makes me think that um you know when you know someone through instagram you think you know them and i suppose in my head from birth you have been like huge advocate of like physiological birth and um but yeah that's really interesting to you when you kind of went into your midwifery training and what you'd kind of experienced to date before you got pregnant um are you you're then saying that when you actually pregnant yourself and started did that hypnobirthing course that you had a kind of mindset change yeah I mean I suppose an important thing to kind of understand I guess about midwifery training is that you don't really see physiological birth like on a labor ward it just doesn't really happen or if it does you know you have to technically support 40 physiological births to um qualify but they're not it's not in the kind of what you're picturing in kind of a home birth context that is a baby that comes out of a vagina without assistance in wherever they wherever they do it um and i suppose at the beginning that was what i wanted and then through the hypnobirthing course what i understood that i hadn't understood before is what actually makes that happen and what in a hospital, what the specific, I, I knew that in a hospital, it didn't happen often and that there was lots of intervention, but I wasn't completely clear on why, particularly the little things, the little things that in a hospital seem really normal. You know, women would come in and we would say, okay, can you just hop up on the scales? They're in labor and we're asking to weigh them in case they need anesthetic in, in for an emergency cesarean. Like it's absolute madness. I'm like, nobody's, when I understood the actual, the impact that that would have, um, that very much changed my approach of what I actually kind of wanted from from my birth um and so yeah I suppose that's where the, the kind of shift happened it was the understanding of the, the tiny little shifts that actually can have big impacts on how birth unfolds yeah and that's a great message to get out there isn't it because I I think our natural assumption would be that the maternity system you know knows about all that and uh, is going to be supporting that and um so it's a really important message a that they they don't and B, that actually it's not that difficult to understand and and look into it. And obviously that's like your motivation in, in courses like yours. But, you know, I think that just it's not intuitive, is it, that you would need to do that um, because you assume that that the system's going to be set up for it. Um, so, yeah, I think it'd be really interesting for people to hear that that someone that that was that was even your journey. <laughs> um, I think you get very used to what you see in a hospital. Um, it, you know, I wasn't afraid of hospitals. And that was, I think, worked in the end to my benefit. Like being in hospital didn't I wasn't bothered by that. Um, I was very, it was a place I was very familiar with. I wasn't afraid of the actual environment of a hospital, which that in itself can affect people um, a lot. Um, but that wasn't what specifically was bothering me. It was more I could see the kind of the the attitudes and the little things that happened um, to the point that I flat out refused to book at the hospital that I worked at because I was like, if I end up on the labor ward and this person is there, like that baby is not coming out because I'm going to cross my legs and not go anywhere near them. Um, so we didn't. I didn't book at the hospital that I was working at. We booked at our slightly more local hospital um 
but yeah, those were the, the sort of shifts, I suppose, that happened for me during pregnancy. Um, so then we got to, where was I? 38 and a bit weeks pregnant. Um, and my baby had stopped moving. Um, and obviously this is something that's kind of reiterated a lot during pregnancy is to be from kind of 28 weeks onwards, being aware of how your baby is moving. Um, and for me, there had been like, even up to this point, a few episodes before this, where it just felt like they weren't, he wasn't moving as much as he normally would. So we had been at a firework party and the whole time I was just sort of slightly aware. I was like, mm, I just don't think he's moving as much as normal, but maybe it's because I'm busy. Maybe it's because I'm distracted. So we went home um, and that evening, sort of after this firework thing, I was like, yeah, he still isn't moving. I think we should kind of pop in and get checked. So we went up to the hospital that evening um, and they put me on the monitor and fortunately everything was fine um they did suggest having an induction of labor at this point in time but at that point i was you know very much still in my head no nope, i'm having a home birth he's fine we're gonna go home we're gonna wait for labor um some conversations were kind of had and i eventually said you know well what you know what else can we do can i come in tomorrow and can i have a, i actually think i said can i have a scan like now um because it was evening night time um they couldn't do a scan right now but they said we can book you in for a scan tomorrow morning um and for me that felt like a plan that i was kind of happy with um coming in for a scan just to kind of confirm that he's growing that everything is kind of going as expected felt like something that i was comfortable with um so we did go home got a good night's sleep got ready the next morning to go in for the scan um got to the hospital had the scan everything like he was growing normally it was sort of fine but he didn't move at all during the scan and i still hadn't really felt him move so now we're going on like probably over 12 hours then when i'd felt him kind of move sort of normally um so it there wasn't like any urgent he needs to be born immediately but there was because of this still lack of movement there was still kind of concern as to maybe something wasn't quite right and how did you how did you feel like what were your instincts telling you at this point I think there was probably like a niggling doubt very, very, very deep down that something maybe wasn't quite right. But I was still very steadfast at this point in my mind that I was going home now and we were waiting for labour and I was having a home birth. Thank you very much. Um, that was still very much, yeah, the plan that was in my head. Um, and then sort of in the hours that followed, it just felt like we were kind of passed from person to person, having all these different conversations while people tried to work out what the like best thing was for us to do. Um there was like monitoring and there was meetings and conversations and it was all just very confusing I didn't really know what I wanted to do or what the best thing was to do um and then it got to about so the scan was at like 11 o'clock in the morning and we were still there at five o'clock so and nobody had told us that we were now in for the day so that in itself was also very confusing we were like when can when can we leave this place when can we go home um but by about five o'clock, we found ourselves on the gay assessment unit in a cubicle, um, just monitoring baby's heart rate. I'm pretty sure we were just in there on our own. Um, and we got this little knock sort of on the curtain. Um, and a midwife that we recognised poked her head around. And she was the head of the home birth team. Um, and she had been out all day doing her visits, doing her home birth work. And when she came back to the hospital, she'd seen our names on a board somewhere um so knew that we were in and recognized them as names that were booked under the home birth team so she said you know I, I just thought I'd pop in and check that everything was okay at which point I just burst into tears I think um so she took us into a side room and went and had a conversation and got our notes and kind of got herself up to date with what our current circumstances were and we just had it must have been about 45 minute long conversation where 
finally, somebody was talking to us that understood what I wanted from my birth, what I was, you know, very frankly asked, you know, what is it that you're worried about? What is it that is scaring you? What's, what is it that's making you say no? What is it that you want? Um, and just had like this really unpushy, balanced, nuanced conversation about all of our options. Um, you know, if we went home and planned for a home birth, what would that look like? What what would her concerns be? What would our concerns be? Um, and it, that 45 minute conversation just changed my entire, that is what I attribute the positivity of our entire birth experience down to was this single conversation where somebody just listened to us and just knew what that we were scared and why we were scared and wasn't thinking oh just get on with it you know um and we eventually in that conversation decided that the right thing to do was to have um an induction of labor um but it very much felt like that decision was coming from me it felt like my decision it didn't feel like something that i was pushed into um and this is something that i've kind of gone on to communicate as like a really sort of key part of my work with birth ed is that the difference between an induction, a cesarean, any decision that you're, that any kind of birth that you have, when it feels like you did it because you chose to do it, that is a very, very different emotional picture to an induction or a cesarean that you had because somebody made you or because you didn't feel like you had any choice. Um, and going into birth, feeling like it was something that we chose ended up being, I think, really, really important in terms of the experience that we ended up having. Um, so in at the end of this kind of um, conversation, when we decided that, yes, um, an induction now felt like the right point, right plan, um, she offered to do a stretch and sweep, which if people aren't familiar with, is basically um, basically stretching the, the cervix to hopefully kind of get labor going. Um, and because we had already decided, yes, an induction feels like the right thing to do, um, that felt like kind of a good starting point to me. Um, and particularly for it to be done by somebody that I felt very comfortable with, very trusting in, um, all of those things were important in the kind of decision making around that. So we had a stretch and sweep. She's found that my cervix had actually was already kind of stretching, was already starting to open. Um, it's completely irrelevant. And you'll see in the whole story that it's completely irrelevant. But the cervix, if you're interested, was two centimetres dilated. Um, the numbers don't mean anything, but it was sort of, I suppose, a good sign that things were definitely moving forwards. Um, the one caveat that I had to accepting the induction was that before we did it, I needed to go home. I needed to get out of this hospital that I'd been in all day. We didn't have any of our stuff for starters. And they were like, oh, just send your husband home, get your stuff. And I was like, no, I know what happens here. Then I end up on an antenatal ward on my own. You end up starting to do things and I don't feel then strong enough or able to ask the questions. I was like, no, I need to get out of this hospital. I need to go home. I need to have a shower. We were washing up in the sink. We need to do the washing up. We need to go buy snacks. I need to just sit down and let this decision like settle in me for a bit. Um, so we did that. We left the hospital. We went home. I had a shower, washed my hair. Um, we sort of readdressed the, the decision to just double check, you know, is this definitely what we wanted to do um, and decided, yes, it was. Um, we went to M&S and got snacks. And once we had kind of really decided yes this is what we're going to be doing now that's when I just we like allowed ourselves to get excited you know we're going to meet our baby soon and um, in my head I was like in like four days time um but it was it was happening the birth was going to be the labor and the birth was going to be starting um I sat and watched like three episodes of Friends so I really got myself into like a good headspace um before we went back to the hospital so I think we got home probably at like half five six ish um and we were back at the hospital about half past eight now, when we got there, oh, previously as well, that the midwife, the amazing home birth midwife, had phoned the labour ward 
just to kind of update them of our situation so that they would be expecting us um had spoken to them about what we wanted from the birth i was like i want to be able to use the pool on the labor ward i want to be able to kind of move i don't want to be kind of strapped to a bed um and she had gone and communicated all of that for us which again made me feel like really reassured now, when we got back to the hospital at half past eight, obviously there's a shift change in most hospitals between seven and eight p.m. usually. Um, so when we got there, nobody was expecting us. They didn't know who we were, and the hospital had got really busy. So there had been space to start the induction at five thirty when we'd been having the initial conversations. But during our time having left the hospital, by the time we came back, now all of the labour ward was full, and it wasn't they, there wasn't space on the, even on the antenatal ward to take us in to start the induction. Now. This, I think, in hindsight, actually worked out in our favour because they then didn't want me to go home, but there was no space on the antenatal ward. So the only place that they could put us was in this beautiful birth centre room that was like this private room. It had a couch, it had a bed, it had all this space in it. Um, so this was our new kind of holding zone uh, versus what would have been like a cubicle on an antenatal ward. So we were quite happy with this setup. We were very comfortable. Um, we had some dinner. We watched some telly. Um, and actually, it's a birth centre is very, very nice. Um, so we felt very relaxed there. Um, however, every hour that we were kind of expecting somebody to come in and be like, OK, we're ready to start. We're ready to start. We're ready to start. It just wasn't happening. There were no updates. Nobody was coming in. We felt very kind of left on our own. Um, Eventually, about midnight, um, a doctor finally made their way around to the birth centre to see us. And I think probably what was particularly difficult about this was that all of the conversations that day had been about how important it was that we had the induction and how dangerous it would be to not have the induction. And that we, I had asked, you know, maybe I could come back in tomorrow morning and we'll do it. And it had been like, no, 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 you have to do it tonight. And then when we got in to do it and they couldn't do it, Oh, it was fine. It was totally safe to delay it. It didn't need to be done right now. Um, and so that was very conflicting, that it was okay to delay it when it was on their terms, but to delay it on my terms would have been vastly dangerous. Um, so that did make me feel a little bit uneasy and kind of on edge. And were the, the movements, um, yeah, how, did they just sort of continue to be very minimal? They, they were still, yeah, they were still reduced and say so they weren't, it just didn't feel normal at this point. So I was still very happy with the decision to do the induction. Um, doctor came in to see us at about midnight um, and was like, okay, like basically like, okay, we can do it. And I was like, we're not starting this at midnight. This is ridiculous. Like, I need to go to sleep now. Um, so had again thankfully a really balanced conversation with her she didn't push us into anything she suggested um another stretch and sweep which i also felt like was a good idea at that point um so we did that and i did say you know can i just go home and sleep at home and i'll come back in the morning um but they sort of said you know we'd like to monitor the baby at 6 a.m and if it's if we've got space at that time we could start then and say so actually in terms of getting the maximum amount of sleep it did feel like actually staying in was then the right thing to do. So she did a stretch and sweep, um, similar sort of discovery to the first one, um, and then basically left us in what was now our own like private room. We both had a bed each to sleep on. It was it was a good as hospitals go. It was like a very good sort of first night in hospital. Um, so you went to sleep, and then about three a.m. I woke up with just like really low down period pain. So kind of like bottom half of my bump, not coming and going, just like a kind of constant ache cramping ache basically exactly like period pain um so got up and went to the loo um went to the loo and found that my mucus plug delightful had um come away so i was like oh this is definitely a good sign like things and something is definitely happening um so i sort of just hung out in the bathroom for a bit because my husband was asleep in the other room um i think i washed my face brushed my hair just like chilled out for a bit um and then thought right i'm gonna go back to sleep so i went back to the bed had a bit more of a sleep um they woke us at six in the morning to do some further 
monitoring. Um, still had these kind of crampy sensations, like um, kind of like period pain sensations, not coming and going still, just like a kind of constant lower abdominal cramp. Um, at about 7 a.m., um, a student midwife came in with a cup of tea, which was, again, but I was like, well, I feel like we're at some sort of hotel rather than like a, an NHS hospital. Um, but after we'd had our cup of tea, then they were like, okay, now there's space on the antenatal ward, so you need to get out. Uh, so we were turfed out, unfortunately, of the beautiful um, birth centre room. We did, we were like, can we just do it here? Because because this is much nicer. Um, but I think they needed, then they needed the birth centre room for somebody else. Um, so then we went to the antenatal ward, which is a, definitely a very different vibe to a birth centre. It was like a five-bedded ward with curtains. Everybody had a bed and a chair, um, but there wasn't very much space. Um, so we they put us again on the monitor to kind of check uh, baby before deciding what kind of method of induction to then use. Um, and when I was on the monitor here... I, I could see because I was used to looking at CTG um, monitoring um, and I could see that on the trace, it looked like I was having contractions. Um, I definitely couldn't feel contractions, um, but there was definitely like a really regular pattern of contractions appearing on the monitor. Um, so the midwife came in to check and she said, well, you, are you feeling those? And I was like, nope, I'm not feeling anything. And for a small moment, I thought perhaps I was magic and that uh, actually I was going to have one of these like, pain-free labors where I didn't even know I was in labor and the baby just popped out. Um, I didn't, but that was it was encouraging to see actually that that was happening and I wasn't even feeling it so I was like something's going on in there and at the moment I can't feel a thing um so she did which is part of the induction process um a vaginal examination to feel my cervix which was still I think two centimeters dilated um and because I was contracting in inverted commas I mean I wasn't feeling anything but something was happening um they'd said if I wanted to I could go to the labor ward and they could break my waters and start the induction in that way. Now, um, there are several steps to the induction process. The kind of stretch and sweep is the very, very bottom one. Um, then sort of ripening the cervix is the next one up and then breaking your waters is the one after that. And I was very wary of induction. and I was very, very wary of jumping ahead. I didn't want to to break my waters and then nothing happened. And then the only option be the bit of the induction, the hormone drip, the bit that I really wasn't wanting to experience. So I was very keen to take things like really slowly and give my body like a good chance, good opportunity to like catch up, I suppose. Um, so I said, no, I'd much rather do. And at the hospital at the time, the only method that they used for ripening the cervix was um, a pessary, which is like hormones that go behind the cervix to sort of soften it, hopefully cause it to start to open. Um, and sometimes that triggers labor. So that's where we started. That's what I felt comfortable with. So she put the pessary in um, and once that was in and we'd kind of been monitored, I said, you know, can we go for a walk? I'm, I'm not sitting in this antenatal ward waiting for labour to start all day. Um, and they were like, yeah, that's a great idea. You can, you know, go for a walk around the car park or you can go to the canteen. So naturally we left the hospital completely, walked into Kingston and went for lunch. Um, so we did not stay walking around the hospital, which would have been a horrible thing to do. Um but within like a 15 minute walk, we found like a beautiful Italian deli um, where we went for lunch, which was really nice. It was sort of very, you know, very exciting. Like things were going to get started. You know, our baby was going to be here. Um, and I thought, you know, there's no harm in, you know, I've got several days ahead of me. There's no harm in carb loading with a nice bowl of pasta before we get going. Um, so we'd ordered our pasta. We're sitting at our table. Before the pasta arrived, I just stood up and I was like, look, we're going to have to get this pasta to go because I, I couldn't sit down. The the 
sensation of that like lower abdominal kind of cramping had disappeared uh, and now it was like the most intense ache if you can like imagine inside your body where your cervix is like deep inside your body from there like this radiating deep ache that just meant I, I literally could not sit on my bum I was like oh my god we need to we need to go and we need to get this pasta and take it with us um so we got our takeaway pasta now it's funny how like I don't know if it's time or if it's labor, but something definitely blurs your memory. And I can't remember for the life of me if I ever ate this bowl of pasta, but there was pasta at some point and it came with us in some sort of one of those metal tin things. I bet your husband ate both bowls. Yeah, he probably ate both, didn't he? I'll have to ask him, what happened to that pasta that I got six years ago and I don't know if I ate it or not? Um, but we started walking back to the hospital um, and on that walk, um, my contractions started coming, at which point I totally panicked because they were really quite intense quite quickly. And I was like, oh my God, what if this baby comes on the pavement? We've left the hospital. We see the baby was, don't worry, the baby was not then born on the pavement. He didn't come for several hours yet. Um, but we made it back to the hospital, having not given birth on the pavement. Um definitely like really the, the contractions were feeling quite intense throughout my bump like really almost at the kind of cramping sensation that you get in your leg if you get a cramp that throughout my entire bump I said I would describe as, as the sensation that I was feeling now um and so we got the midwife to help us put the tens machine on which I love I would literally take out shares in a tens machine in both of my labors they have been like my absolute go-to for pain relief um so the tens machine was on then we went back out. We just went to the stairs of the maternity unit this time. Um, and I was like pacing the stairs, going up and down. Um, again, by this point, like the uh, my knowledge of time has now gone out the window. So I was definitely like in the what I describe as the underwater part of labor. I was not really aware of the kind of the outside world. Um, time had become abstract. So from this point, you'll just have to make me let me guess what, what sort of timing we were on. Um, but at some point after probably an hour or so of walking up and down these stairs, um, I suddenly was like, no, I need to sit down. I was not comfortable standing anymore and I needed to sit down. So we went back to the maternity, the antenatal ward um, and from somewhere got a birth ball, which I sat on next to the bed, kind of leaning over the bed. Um, I feel like they might have put the monitors back on me at some point here, but um, I was definitely comfortable with the TENS machine on, eyes closed, kind of head over, leaning over the bed, um, sitting on this ball. Um and at some point, I got gas and air. I don't remember when, but it was probably around this point. Um, and I remember my husband reading these. Um, so with hypnobirthing, you get like guided relaxations, which are kind of like um, scripts that you can read that aid like deep relaxation. Um, you can get them as MP3s or you can get them, you can read them yourself. And the course that we had done, I really despised the voice of the woman that um, read the MP3. So I was like, I cannot listen to her. She said, she basically, she sounded like the queen. And I was like, I don't want the queen to be talking to me while I'm in labor. So we had, I got my husband to record them, which I really liked during pregnancy. Um, but in labor, he was reading them to me in my ear and because I had gas and air all I could think in my head was like oh my god he has no idea how stupid he sounds this is absolutely hilarious I thought the whole thing was hilarious um it was definitely the gas and air talking which is basically laughing gas um but fine if even though I was finding it amusing that is good for oxytocin but um I, I didn't actually voice this to him at the time but I did think he sounded a bit stupid um so that was nice for a while kept me distracted and entertained um and then eventually I put in headphones and had like relaxing music that had like nature sounds in the background so I think it was like a lot of rain music um and that was really good at just like taking me out of this antenatal ward environment um helping me relax in my head I was in Isha woods which are like the woods near our house in the pouring rain um and the kind of visualization practice hypnobirthing practice that we've done in pregnancy um I was able to kind of access that just through the music and the sounds rather than actually using any of the guided relaxations in labor. Um, and this and the tens machine and the breathing and the gas and air, that 
little combo um, was very, very helpful for like the vast, vast majority of labor. Um, I then got to a point where I was like, I'm now not comfortable sitting down. And the only, I remember just moving and like desperately trying to find anywhere that felt vaguely comfortable and finding it really difficult to get into any position that was like vaguely comfortable. Um, and I eventually found myself laying on the bed, if you can picture this. So you've got a hospital bed with the back propped up. Imagine if your head is like down where your feet would usually be. And my feet were propped up at the top of the bed. Like basically I was in like some sort of shoulder stand. This was the only position that was like vaguely comfortable to me and neighbor. Um, and it's this is one of the things that I was really grateful that we didn't have like one-to-one midwife support at this point, because there is nothing about the position that I was in that is listed on any like antenatal course. If you ever look up birth positions, I promise you that you will not find one with a shoulder stand in it. But for some reason, this is the position that was comfortable to me. And in hindsight, I can look back um, and I know that my baby had been back to back in the kind of early part of labour. And in hindsight, looking back at it, I know that this was my body telling me to basically tip him back out of the pelvis so that he could turn around and get back in the way that he needed to. Um, And so it was amazing that I was able to, nobody ever even really saw me do it. So I was never kind of guided out of it. Um, I did also feel at this point like a pushy sensation. And this was a very, very different sensation to like bearing down to push it was like a kind of nudging sensation um and i'd said to i think i said to my husband to tell the midwives that it felt like i needed to push um and so that they came in and the first midwife who was lovely i think she was either scottish or irish which was very kind very friendly um and so she suggested a vaginal examination which she did um and at this point she said she thought it was four centimeters which i knew meant in inverted commas, established labour, now you can have your own room. Um, but she just needed to go and get her like midwife in charge to go and check. And I was so out of it at this point. You know, I, I hear this now, me saying it, and I'm like, what earth are you talking about? She needed somebody to go and check. Of course, you can't repeat it. Like, you do it once, and that's the answer. Um, but when I was in it, I, you know, you, when you're in that stage of labour, you basically will just say yes to anything. So this other midwife, who was not friendly, um, repeated it. And she said, no, no, you're only three centimetres dilated. So you definitely don't need to push. Um, and when... I now have the full picture of what was going on. I now know that the rest of the labor ward was full. So I know that there wasn't a room for me. So I know that it would have been very inconvenient for them to have found that I was four centimeters dilated and that I needed a room. I personally would, looking back and kind of reflecting on it, would much rather have them said, yeah, you are, but there's not a room. So as soon as there is one, you can have it. Um, But that's not what they said. They basically told me that I wasn't in labor. Um, And fortunately, when I had been... Um, doing my midwifery training, I had worked with a midwife who was a very, very experienced birth center midwife. And we had seen somebody in a similar situation to the one that I was in now, where it looked like she was in inverted commas, early labor, um, but she had a pushing sensation. And this midwife had said to me, she didn't talk to the woman at all. She just let her get on with it. And she said, just look at what she's doing. And I was like, well, it looks like she's pushing. She was like, yeah, she is. But it's not pushing, like bearing down, expulsive, get a baby out pushing. She's like, her baby's back to back. Just watch. And Within 10, 15 minutes, she'd stop doing it, the little pushing that she was doing. She'd stop doing it. And then within two hours, her baby was born. And this sensation that she'd been feeling was her body just correcting a difficult position for her baby. So I'm so glad I had that experience and I'd seen that happen because then in my head, in my own birth, rather than resisting what my body was telling me to do, I was able to just kind of channel this incredible midwife. And I think in my head, I said, well, fuck you. I'm just listening to what my body's telling me to do. And it's telling me to push. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, and so I did. Um, and then during that time, so I still had the pessary in at this point in time. Um, so this was probably 
I don't know, five, six o'clock in the evening now. Um, and I still had the pessary in. And something that can happen when you've got a pessary or hormone part of ripening the cervix is that if that kickstarts labor, it, you can do something called hyperstimulate, which is when your um, contractions, rather than having a contraction and then having like a nice break in between that helps you actually kind of relax, that helps the placenta fill back up with blood, that helps the uterus do its job, um, you don't get the gap in between. So I was now having contraction after contraction after contraction without any breaks in between which is so 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 unbelievably impossible to manage um so at this point i was like right you just i need anything i need an epidural i need a pool i need my own room i literally do not care what it is but you have to get me something um obviously there wasn't a room let alone a room with a pool in it um which meant i also couldn't have an epidural so somebody managed to talk me into having pethidin i would have taken anything if you'd told me that putting a sock on my head would have fixed it at this point in time honestly i would have done anything um and i also remember saying to the midwife you take this pessary out or i'm pulling it out myself because i knew that the way of fixing it was to remove it um so they took it out um and really just kept stalling the giving me of this pethidin oh you need to be monitored for half an hour but they didn't go and get the monitors all kinds of reasons why they weren't giving it to me then the shift changeover happened again, which is the kind of seven to eight o'clock thing. And a new midwife came on who fortunately was much nicer than the one who had been on before um, and basically gave me pethidin straight away because I had now been, I was now desperate for it. I was asking for it. Um, so she gave me this pethidin. And then very, very shortly after that, a room on the labor ward became available. Um, and I remember they came in with a wheelchair and they were like, just get on the wheelchair and we'll take you to the room. I remember looking at this person with a wheelchair and I was like, you're not going to get me there quickly. You're going to take me really like gently to this room. And here in my hand, I have gas and air. And in that room over there, there is gas and air. And on this journey, there is not going to be gas and air. And I remember I'd been to the toilet in earlier in labor and I'd, I'd said this gas and air does absolutely nothing. So I went for a wee, sat down on the toilet and had a contraction without gas and air. And I was like, oh my God, it does, it does. I need it back. I need it back. So I was like, I am not having a contraction in this corridor because you're pushing this wheelchair too slowly. So I was like, right, tell me which room it is and I'm going to go there between contractions. So they pointed at this room and I have no idea what came over me, but I took the gas and air from the antenatal ward, took my like last gasp of it and then sprinted, like ran down the corridor in labor into this next room just to like get hold of the gas and air, which obviously wasn't like ready and waiting for me. Um, but eventually got that. So now we were in a labor ward room. Uh, I was standing up, had the gas in air, fine. Just sort of re-getting myself used to the new space. I'd had my eyes closed. I didn't even see this room until the baby was born. Um, and so like, I definitely had pictures in my head if I wanted like the lights to be dimmed. I wanted to create create like a space once we were on the labor ward. Now, once I got there, I was in such the deep throes of labor that I didn't even open my eyes. I could, you, I, I could have still been in the corridor and I actually wouldn't have noticed. Um, so, but at this point, I still now want an epidural. I just wanted something that was going to help me. So before having the epidural, the new midwife, or the another midwife now, said, okay, we'll do a vaginal examination before having the epidural so we can kind of see what's going on. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea because actually if I'm like nearly there, maybe I don't need it. Um, so I had this vaginal examination. And so bearing in mind a minute ago, well, maybe like an hour ago, I was three centimetres dilated. Um, had this vaginal examination. She was like, oh, you're eight centimetres dilated. And for me that was and I know the numbers mean absolutely nothing and if she'd never told me I was three centimeters I never would have doubted myself um but that was the confirmation that I needed to go actually I was right I, I think I remember saying I told you I told you I was in labor and nobody believed me um and that was what I needed to know that I knew what was going on better than anybody else did um so 
I then decided I didn't want the epidural. I wanted you all to just leave me alone and let me get on with it. So then I spent some time. I wasn't out on the bed, but I remember being like up on almost like kneeling upright, leaning over the back of the bed um, and then finding it comfortable kind of like resting on my side. And very, very shortly after that, um, I got the urge to push a very different urge to the sensation that I'd been feeling before, like a kind of expulsive, the baby is coming kind of pushing. And this surprised me that in comparison to what I'd been feeling before, this was like easy. It was like a really good, it felt really good. It felt like the best way that I can describe it is if you've ever stubbed your toe and you get a really sore toe, you know, when you squeeze it and squeezing, it makes it feel better. That in my first labor is what the pushing sensation felt like. It was like something was hurting, but I could do something that almost stopped it, that like stemmed it, that made it feel better. Um, And so suddenly going from essentially that first part of labor, I felt quite passive, like it was happening within my body and there was nothing that I could do about it into this part of labor where I felt like an active participant, like everything that I was doing was actually progressing labor. And I was, I was doing something. Um, And I found that really, really good and really helpful and really useful thing to be able to kind of cling on to in neighbor um so definitely that was that was definitely helpful and surprised me because i thought this would be the hard part of labor and then in that labor it was actually the good the easier part of labor um and then as he was being born i don't know probably like half an hour into pushing i remember this it was it was like an abstract voice because i still hadn't opened my eyes to even see what this midwife looked like to even see who she was and she was good at least like she hadn't interfered up to this point she wasn't bothering me she had very much kind of left me to it um my mum and my husband were there and they both said that she basically just sort of hid in the corner which was good because that's what i wanted um and then i was on the monitors at this point they were listening into baby's heart rate and um she, I remember her saying from the side of the room, well, baby's heart rate's dropping. I'm just going to get somebody to come in to see if you need a bit of help. And th- th- those were the words that she said. Now, having worked on a labor, that sounds fine. That sounds like a totally fine thing to suggest. Having worked on a labor ward, I immediately, in my head, I was like, well, I know that that's code for instrumental birth. And in my head, vividly remember saying, like, fuck, you are helping me. And I remember that I had been pushing, but I wasn't like, I was pushing with my body rather than pushing with all my might. Um, And the suggestion of this was, okay, well, I'm just going to push with all my might and get him out before you can actually come near me with anything. Um, And within three pushes after her saying that, he was born. He was born with his hand up on his face, which is why the kind of progress, it wasn't even slow progress, but I think that was why the concern had kind of arisen was because his little hand was up. Um, But fortunately then he came out and the paediatrician walked in the room and heard a baby crying was like, oh, okay, well, bye. And then walked back out again. So we didn't have, I don't think we had like a room filling with people. I think maybe like one or two people kind of strolled in and then realized that it was all fine and then actually left. Um, and then he went straight up to my chest and was kind of skin to skin with me, which is what I had asked for. But I actually, in hindsight, I'm like, oh, I wish we'd all just taken a moment to like see him because he was just plonked right up by by my face and I just couldn't see him and I was like oh I don't know who I'm saying I don't know who you are hello I don't know who you are because I just couldn't couldn't see him um and I wish it had just been like okay there he is and then I had been kind of allowed to receive him rather than somebody who just plonked him on me um and then I remember that she had kind of asked consent to give the um injection for the placenta whilst I was pushing which is the most ridiculous thing in the entire world because right then I would you could have asked me for a million pounds and I would have given you a million pounds I, I didn't have the capacity to consent or not consent to anything so I remember I think I said yes but 
you know, I don't think it was particularly informed consent. Um, so that all just kind of happened in a blur. The injection happened, the placenta, she pulled the placenta out and then it was gone. And I remember about half an hour after he was born being like, oh, can I have a look at the placenta? And she was like, oh no, it's gone, <laughs> it's gone. Um, which then very much played a part into my second birth. I was very explicit about what happened to the placenta. I was like, you are not cutting any kind of cord until they are both out and I've seen them and I've seen them attached. Um, so, and, and so that went and that was a bit disappointing in hindsight. But in the moment when he was born, I just felt like overwhelming pride, not at him, but at myself, at like what I had just done. The fact that they had been constantly trying to interfere and I had done it on my own. Um, I just was like so proud of myself and I felt so, so good. And it wasn't it wasn't like an instant rush, overwhelming love with the baby. I wasn't like indifferent to him. I liked him, but it wasn't like a, an overwhelming, oh my God, here you are. I've been waiting for you all the time. It was very surprised. Like, oh, wow. Hello. Who are you? I don't know who you are. You're not, you don't look like what I expected you to look like. Um, all of that just felt like a big kind of surprise. Um, but it was the feeling that I had was just like, or total awe of what it felt like, what I'd managed, how difficult it had been, but how I'd still done it. Um, so it was it was overwhelmingly positive. And for months after that, I was just walking on air with like, I remember coming out of the hospital being like, you don't, to all the people walking down the street, just thinking like, you don't know what I've just done. Like, I just had a baby and like, you're just going about your life and you've got no idea. Um, and so there are certainly things that I look back knowing what I know now, doing the work that I do now, having had another birth um, and looking back going like, oh, I might have done that a little bit differently or it was really bad that they behaved in this way or that they said this. But in the moment and for the months and even years afterwards, um, I just like, I just thought it was incredible. Um, and I was so happy with how it had gone. Um, and I think that that was my kind of main takeaway and the main kind of message that I would pass on is that um, even when things don't go the way that you wanted them to or the way that you had expected them to, um, that that your your strength and your ability to do it doesn't lie in your home or a birth pool or whatever it is that you've kind of attached to the experience that you want it's in yourself and that comes with it's in you and it's in your baby and the connection that you have together and that goes with you wherever and however you are giving birth to your baby um and that the mental preparation that i did for a home birth really really helped because i could keep saying to myself well if i was at home i wouldn't have this if i was at home i wouldn't be able to do this um and that from a kind of managing it mentally perspective really helped but actually proving to myself that it was me that did it it wasn't home that did it it wasn't you know a birth pool that did it it was the strength that kind of we had um was i think that was my kind of main takeaway and something that just totally went on to shape me like as a mother in my business in in everything that i did kind of moving forwards Thank you. And that's, I mean, I, I'm sure that's your motivation, but it's mine too. It's just that more women would come through birth feeling like that. That's very much how I felt when I had my second baby. It's just, I could do anything if I can do that. And uh, sadly, it's it's not as common an experience as it, as it should be, isn't it? Because it, it is absolutely true. Um, do you mind if I just pick up on a couple, a couple bits? No, of course. Yeah. I was wondering what kind of tips you have I was I was really interested when you were talking about that conversation you had with the midwife when you kind of decided to have the induction and you mentioned the words nuance 
And I think uh, me personally, uh, with my first baby, that's what I really struggled to find was nuance. So I had gestational diabetes and um, they wanted to induce me because they were worried the baby would get stuck. But then I was like, but induction can also increase the risk of, you know, shoulder dystocia. So where's the new, I found no nuance. Um, and that made it hard for me to trust. And I suspect that isn't an uncommon experience. Um, so yeah, how do you think you... How do you find the nuance in the system? It's difficult, isn't it? And I think I think ultimately it doesn't lie with you. It lies with who you're speaking to and their ability to understand nuance. Somebody, when I was um, applied for midwifery, most midwifery degrees are a Bachelor of Science degree, but there's one in the UK and I'm not sure which hospital, it, uh, which, which university it is, but theirs is a, a BA, so a Bachelor of Arts. Um, and I, it, it just triggered a really interesting conversation for me in the, the kind of the question of is midwifery a science or is it an art? And I think it's an, there's, I think there's an art to midwifery. And I think some midwives are very, very good at understanding what that, what that is. Um, and so I think sometimes when you are very, very used to working in a hospital, whether that is a, as a doctor or a midwife, if you're very used to working in the kind of the medicalized system, it's very simple to just look at things in like black and white terms, to look at numbers, to look at data. Um, and it, becomes difficult to look at a whole person and to kind of understand that they are coming at it with their own experiences, with their own wishes, with their own desires, with their own background, with their own culture. There's so much that's going to impact their decision that isn't just the data. Um, And equally, there's so much that influences the data that we're relying on that is actually influenced by their culture and their decisions and the people that decided to partake in the research in the first place. And so it's never black and white. And I think from a kind of going into your own birth perspective if you can just acknowledge that data is not is never in maternity and most healthcare black and white it's always influenced by the person that's decided to do the research by the people that have decided to partake in the research so it can never be taken as a kind of yes or no decision so just understanding that so that you can kind of start to ask the questions um and then it is kind of relying on the person that you're then having the conversation with. If they are a good midwife or a good doctor, then just being really human with them and just saying like, this is what I'm scared of. This is what I wanted. This is what I think it might turn out like. Um, can I think make them realize what it is that's influencing your decision and sometimes can kind of soften them to have a, a more humanized conversation and sometimes it doesn't and sometimes they go well, I don't know what you're scared of. why you're scared of that you're going to be fine or well it might happen but so what and if you're getting that kind of response I would just stop the conversation and have it with somebody else just say you know I don't I don't know if we're, if I'm going to be able to come to a decision in this conversation is there somebody else that I can speak to and if that's the decision that you're making in pregnancy somebody like um, a consultant midwife or asking your midwife which doctor might be a good person to have that kind of conversation with um, would be a kind of really helpful thing to do if it's actually you're in labor and you're there it might just be like grabbing a different midwife or going to the desk and seeing if there's somebody else that you can speak to um, because there's always a second opinion that you can ask for um, and so it might just be a case of kind of choosing who who you have that conversation with yeah brilliant thank you and a bit more along the nuance lines but um how how easy was it so I was really interested when you said that they could have broken your waters um but you wanted to almost start a step back in the induction process and my hunch is that for a lot of women perhaps that wouldn't be 
Well, it probably wasn't even presented to you as a choice. I don't know if it was. Was it just your knowledge that meant you could make that decision to have the pessary instead, or or was it offered to you as a as a genuine choice? I don't. I don't. I think it was. I think both were offered, actually. I do. But the, it was the, the lovely Irish or maybe Scottish midwife that I was having that conversation with. Um, and she had had a home birth. And she, so we'd already had lots of conversations leading up to this moment about what I had wanted. So she was. we were lucky that she was very much understanding of my kind of approach. But also I did very much know what the induction process was just through having been a student midwife at the time. Um, so in part... It was probably that, but I do know that often it isn't presented as a choice. It's, oh, look, we can break your waters, so we'll just wait for you to go to the labour ward. So, yeah, knowing that you can go, well, what else could I do? If I didn't do that, what would my other options be? Um, it's a really always helpful question to ask, I think. And when, um, when did your waters go in the, in the process? Oh, in the pushing, in the pushing stage. So literally, yeah, just before, just before he was born. Yeah, um, and actually, I bet you were glad to have them intact because we know that, you know, there's real benefits to that, don't we, to the, to the baby in the process. So actually, yeah, it made a big difference. Particularly because he was likely, I think, in a difficult position in that early part of labour. And what can happen when we break the waters is it can move baby down into the pelvis more deeply. And if he wasn't aligned yet, it could have been that, yeah, we moved him in too quickly, he was malpositioned, and either he wouldn't come out or he might have needed help getting out. So, yeah, absolutely. In hindsight, I'm really glad that we were able to kind of take it slowly. And uh, final, just pick your brains whilst I've got a chance. Um, but it is... You know, as I started to gather stories for this podcast, you know, it is it is difficult to find positive induction stories um, and kind of from your viewpoint based within from your own experience, but also, yeah, more widely, um, you know, why is that? It's a bit how long is a piece of string, but I suspect you'll have some ideas of common themes. Um, what well, as to why induction is often not positive. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it starts at the decision-making process. I think the, the main contributor to a lot of trauma that is caused by induction is misinformation and the fact that a lot of women go into it without realizing that they even had a choice. And as I kind of sort of spoke about in my own experience, the way that choosing versus not choosing something that happens impacts the way that we experience something emotionally um, is, is really, really important. Um, and I think a lot of women are just told, okay, well, we've booked you in for an induction on this day and they never had a conversation about it. They never knew that they could turn it down. They never knew that actually the research around the reason for them needing or being suggested an induction, they never knew that actually the chances of something bad happening were so small or so tiny. And they look back and they go, oh, if I'd known that, I might have made a different decision. So there's there's definitely that. And I think that's a huge contributor. Um, so definitely making sure that you know it's a choice and that you understand like the politics around induction, if that makes sense. So the, we're seeing in the UK at the moment, every single year, the induction rate creep doesn't even creep up it jumps up higher and higher and higher i think the last statistics we've got are the 2020 2021s and it was over 50 percent of women are either having a planned cesarean birth or an induction of labor so less than half of women are going into spontaneous labor which if that was if that was genuinely needed the human race would have been wiped out by now if, if less than half of the human race could go into labor spontaneously and have a baby at the end of it then the that the math just doesn't make sense we would have died out um so there is no way that the, the induction rates need to be as high as they are um there absolutely is space for induction as a potentially life-saving intervention for some women um and it's about asking the right questions to work out, am I one of the women that genuine, or one of the people that genuinely need an induction of labor for the safety of myself or my baby? Or have I just ticked the wrong box somewhere on a bit of paper and this is where I've ended up? Um, 
and there it's your decision to make and it's not somebody else's decision to kind of put upon you so that would be my kind of first tip the second thing is again just like the understanding uh, the understaffing and the system of a hospital is that the expectation of what an induction is going to be you're going to go in and you're going to have your baby now is sort of what women are sold and they aren't adequately counseled on the fact that the induction story i've just told for a first time mum at 39 weeks is really fast like that is an incredibly quick induction for a first time mum of that gestation um where you're mainly looking at three or four days on an antenatal ward before you're even in labour. Um, and that might be that it's the process taking time to work, but it might be that there's no room on the labour ward or somebody's come in that needs an induction more urgently than you do. And there's this, these kind of constant delays. And I think the lack of honesty around what that might look like um, sets people up for an experience that they weren't expecting. And we don't like things that we weren't expecting. We don't like to be deceived. Um, and that, again, sets us up emotionally for a, a bad time. Um, and then the final thing would just be that the induction process generally does carry more risks than a spontaneous labour. So the risk of your baby's heart rate dropping and somebody needing to intervene is higher when you're inducing labour. The risk of an instrumental birth is higher when you have um, an induction of labour. The risk of an unplanned cesarean birth is higher when you have an induction of labour. And those things in themselves, any intervention or complexity of labour um, is going to impact your experience of it, particularly if that is different to what you had kind of hoped for or wanted. So I would say it's a very, very complex combination of all of those things, but that's quite a lot of potential places to trip up. Um, and some of those things are in our control and we can ask the right questions and make the right decisions and we can kind of counteract them. But some of them aren't within our control. If an induction is the right decision, some of those things are not still aren't within our control. We can do lots to support our physiology. We can do lots to support our movement, to support what we're feeling. But some some of that will be taken out of our hands just by the fact that we have had the intervention, even if it was a justified intervention. Yeah, yeah, no, but that's that's really helpful. And I think it was really helpful how you described how you got to your decision. And I think, um, as you say, that step is often missing. In my experience, that is the most of, of any kind of birth. That is the most important thing. It doesn't matter. I mean, it does matter, but it doesn't actually matter in terms of how you feel about your experience. We know that there isn't necessarily a link between the outcome of a birth and trauma. Over half of trauma is caused by the care that people are receiving, and the it's not a phys not necessarily a physical thing that happened, like uh, an event that happened or a, a, you know somebody being very unwell. It is somebody didn't listen to me, somebody pushed me into something, some I felt coerced. It's that that causes trauma, and that is just so easily overcome by healthcare professionals doing their job in a good way. Um, and sometimes it, we can we can do it for ourselves as. Um, women going into it asking the right questions making sure we're speaking to the right people but again ultimately that responsibility shouldn't be ours to shoulder it should just be forthcoming um but when it's not it might be that we have the some control over who we're speaking to and the questions that we're asking um and we should take every part every bit of control that we have we should kind of take take hold of um and utilize um and so then if, if it is in our control we do we can do something about it but as i said it, it's not always it's not always preventable no, definitely. And I guess that's why often people who work in the birth world end up, I know you're, you do, and I'm a bit like this, is you sort of wear two hats and you get involved in stuff where you hope to change the wider system, but you also want to help 
women and families right now who who are having their babies and uh, yeah equip them like you say with all the bits that you that you can control which i think is a lot more than people sometimes realize um just just to be equipped for what for what things are like at the moment um and i know that you you know you do amazing work in, in both those spheres so uh, thank you so much and uh, thank you for telling your story have you got um Six is, is he at school at the he's moment? Six, yeah, he's at school now. We did birthday presents this morning. I made Pizza Express after school and watching Strictly with hot chocolates this evening. So that's our that's how we saved Strictly from last weekend. So that's our sixth birthday plans. Low key, but it should be nice. Yeah, it sounds brilliant. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to um, share his birth story with us. Thank you. Oh, it was really nice to say it all on his actual birthday. So I'm glad the timing worked out like this. <laughs> it's brilliant. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank you. Bye. Uh, bye. This podcast does not present itself as medical advice and neither should it be taken as such. The views represented here are personal to the women telling their stories. Sorry for this slightly patronising disclaimer, but such is the world we live in today. Always seek out the information you need before making your own decisions. <laughs>